Good morning. How are you guys doing? Doing well. My name is John Wilkerson. I'm your discipleship pastor here at First More. You guys voted me in a couple months ago. Uh, I, from what I heard, I had to go outside, but I heard that it was all yeses, but one child yelled no. And I'm still looking for him. I'm just kidding. No, but uh, my goal here at First More is to help as many people as possible learn to know, follow, and become like Jesus as possible, and then to help you lead others to do the exact same thing. To put it another way, we want to help as many people as possible follow Jesus, and then to help you lead them to do the exact same thing, that we make disciples with our whole lives, and then we help you make disciples with your whole lives, and those disciples will go on, and they'll teach people how to follow Jesus too. The reason we want to do that is because we believe that Jesus is real, and that he's good, and that following Jesus is the best way to live. I think that if you will live the way the Bible teaches, even if you weren't a Christian, I think if you lived the way it taught, you'd have a better life. Not some health and wealth prosperity thing, but the Bible teaches us that if you want to have better relationships, you need to learn how to forgive, how to love and serve one another. The Bible teaches how to do that, and if you'll do that, you'll have better relationships. If you want to have better finances, the Bible talks about in Proverbs that, you know, if we spend less than we take and we don't take out crazy debt, that we'll build wealth over time. We'll have better finances, not because of health and wealth and seeds that we sow, but because the Bible's true and it correlates to reality. So following Jesus really is the best way to live. In a few weeks, I'm going to get to teach three Wednesday nights that we're going to call Connector Training. It's going to start August 24th. And the reason we're calling it connector training is because our goal is to create a culture of connectors. And many of you are doing this right now, but we want to make sure that we're chasing people down with our lives for the gospel. And so when someone comes in, they're connected with, they feel known because we're trying to chase them down with the gospel. And so we're going to create a culture of connectors, and we're going to start doing that on August 24th. So if you guys want to come to that, that'd be awesome. Uh, today what we're going to do is look at the Bible and kind of see what it's going to take for us to get in the game. What it's going to take for us to start making disciples with our lives and to be used by God. So let's pray and then uh, we'll get started with today's sermon. Jesus, we pray that you would speak through your word today. We pray that it would make sense in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus, we pray that it would ring true. We pray that you would remove any barriers that would keep us from getting in the game of making disciples with our whole lives and that we would follow you. pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever noticed that different stories kind of hit differently when you hear them? Or maybe videos that you watch, like they kind of elicit a different response. I'm not a big crier, but there's one type of video that if I watch, it's going to make me cry almost every time. And that's when a soldier comes home from deployment and they surprise their kids, and you see their kids, like, running to them. Like, I don't know what it is, but I have to, like, switch videos or I start crying. I start thinking about baseball, like, whatever it takes, because I'm going to start crying in public, you know, because different stories hit differently. And so what I want to ask you is, how do you feel when you hear God's stories? When you hear stories of what God's done, what does that um, elicit, what does that bring to your heart? How do you feel? So stories like this. So most of my stories involve college students. I was in college ministry for 16 years. I led a, a ministry called BCM, Baptist Collegiate Ministry. It used to be called BSU, for some of you guys who may have known it back then. The last five, I was at Oklahoma State University leading the ministry there, um, and the Lord did some really cool things. We had a student named Ian, 
And Ian went to college, and he lived kind of the normal college life. He got tangled up in all the things that the world would tell us to chase, drugs and sex and ambition and all these things. And he decided uh, that he wanted to go on a trip with the BCM because the BCM had connected with him. Some students had invited him, and he grew up kind of Christian. He'd been to church. And he decided that he was going to go on a disaster relief trip with us. We are going to go down to Houston and after the flood and help with that. And he said, I'm going to go, but not because I want to serve Jesus, but because I want to prove that you don't have to be a Christian to serve other people. And so he went on the trip with 60 other college students. And as the week went on and we got tired and stressed, he made a realization that he couldn't keep up. And not in the work, like he could do the work, but he realized that the hearts that people had to serve other people were outpacing him. And he started wondering, maybe I should follow Jesus. And he prayed and gave his life to the Lord. One of our students led him to the Lord. And then he started making disciples on campus, like he was discipled, and he started teaching people how to follow Jesus. And before you know it, before I left, he came on staff to serve at the OSU BCM to help students follow Jesus. We had another student, a girl um, at a different college that wanted to study deaf education because she wanted to minister in the deaf community. Another girl on campus was deaf, and our students started connecting with her. And one time at a conference, I, uh, I was doing the invitation and talking about the Lord and the gospel, and the student was out in the crowd signing the gospel to this girl who was deaf, and she believed and repented of her sins, and then she got to disciple her in sign language for the next year. We had another student who went overseas uh, to Asia to make disciples, to share the gospel on a mission trip, like we're going to go to Spain here in a few weeks. But when he got back, he didn't leave the mission on the field, and he found some international students at his college, and he started meeting with them, and they would read the Bible every week together. Every week he would say, do you want to follow Jesus? And every week he would say no. Until one week he said, do you want to follow Jesus? He said yes, and he repented of his sins he prayed to receive Christ, and he started following Jesus. And they kept reading the Bible every week together, but now as brothers who are following Jesus together. There was another girl who was in a group project, and you know how those go. Not well, right? There's always somebody who does all the work, and somebody that doesn't show up, and they all get the same grade, and they get bitter. But she would come, and she would, they thought she was a weirdie because she would bring snacks, and she would talk about Jesus. Then one day, one of the girls in the group didn't show up. And so she asked, like, hey, what happened? And he found out this girl was in the hospital. So she went to the hospital to visit her and found out that this girl in her group had gotten cancer. And she shared the gospel with her in the hospital room. The girl believed. She prayed to receive Christ just two weeks before she went and met her new Savior. Because God does a lot of good things. So when you hear these stories, how do you feel? What wells up in your heart? I think there's a few different responses we have. One is maybe you're annoyed because I sound braggy. Maybe you're excited because of what Jesus has done. But I think there's a third option. I think this is where a lot of us land when we hear what God has done. If the Holy Spirit has transformed us and we're a real Christian, I think there's another response that we often have, and it's this. Why doesn't God use me like that? Can God still use me? There's a lot of reasons maybe we think God can't. Maybe you were a big deal in youth group. 
You led worship, you led devotions, maybe you led small groups. Maybe there was a time in your Christian life when you like were really going after it, and now it's been a long time since the Lord's done anything through you. And you're like, well, why doesn't God use me anymore? Maybe you'd say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I was like in my first marriage. You don't know how I treat my roommates. You've never looked at my browser history. I don't think you know if God can still use me or not. Today, we're going to see in Mark 9, we're going to see the disciples fail in ministry. And in that failure, we're going to see three necessities that it's going to take for us to get in the game, for God to continue to use us. And the answer is, can God still use me? The answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. So we're going to be in Mark 9, 14 through 29 this morning, if you want to go there. Mark 9, 14 through 29. What I'd like to do is just kind of tell you the story, and then we'll come back and hit it in chunks. So Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, they go up on this mountain, and they have this encounter with Moses and Elijah, and it's this great, amazing spiritual thing. And Jesus, it says that his clothes turned so white that no launderer on earth could make him that white. And his face started to shine. And they have this huge spiritual moment. They come down from the mountain. And what do they see? The disciples, some religious elite called scribes. And they see town people arguing. And so they approach these people like, what's going on? And a man comes up to Jesus and says, I brought my son to you. He's been possessed by an evil spirit. And I asked your disciples to cast him out and they couldn't do it. And Jesus replies, oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. So he brings his son to Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he starts to convulse and he foams at the mouth and he starts to grind his teeth. And here's one thing when we we talk about stories in the Bible. I think this is important. Don't imagine a cartoon. This isn't a made-for-TV movie. This is somebody's real child who's really rolling around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, possessed by an evil spirit. And so he brings him to Jesus, and he says, how long has this been happening? He says, since childbirth. It's often thrown him into water and into fire to try to destroy him. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help. Jesus replies, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And Jesus told the spirit to leave and to never come back, and it threw the boy to the ground. He's foaming and he's grinding his teeth. And it says that he looked so stiff that they thought he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he was healed. Later on, the disciples are in private with Jesus. And we see this all the time in Scripture. They get alone, and the disciples ask, what happened? They say, why couldn't we cast out this spirit? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. So point number one in today's story is that the disciples still needed Jesus, and so do we. If we are going to win spiritual battles in our lives, and don't be deceived, we are in spiritual battles. The world wants nothing more for you and your family to be ruined. Families fall every day because we're losing spiritual battles. We're giving in to temptation. We're in spiritual battles. And point number one, the disciples still needed Jesus to win spiritual battles, and so do we. This is in 14 through 19. (coughs) Excuse me. So I'm going to read 14 through 19. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to him. And he asked them, 
What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. The disciples lost a spiritual battle, I believe, over authority. They had authority to cast out demons. In fact, in Mark 6, 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they did cast out demons kind of a lot. It was kind of one of their things. But now something's different. All of a sudden, they can't do it. They can't do what they've been doing. They had the power and authority, but now they don't. Why? Leadership author and Christian John Maxwell said this. He said, all authority is on loan, meaning that it rests with the one with higher authority. So the traffic cop that pulls you over and gives you a ticket only has authority because the department gave him a badge. And if the department takes that badge away, he's no longer a cop. He no longer has the authority to pull you over. And so the disciples <coughs> were loaned authority from Jesus because he's the one that owns it. And thus it can be lost. It was his. They only have it when they're connected to him. And maybe, just maybe the disciples lost the spiritual battle because they forgot they needed Jesus. Jesus was off doing his thing and they're trying to minister and maybe they just forgot. Because he holds the authority to overcome spiritual darkness and to win spiritual battles. The application's easy here. Have you been back to the source of your authority. If, if you feel like you just keep losing, you keep falling into temptation, you keep making those decisions that you know the Lord doesn't want you to make, or you keep treating people that way that you know the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to, or whatever battle you're in, if you keep losing, let me ask you, have you been back to the source of your authority? Do you run back to Jesus? We start to think the real stuff is in us. When we do that, we disconnect from the power that we have. And maybe there's some spiritual arrogance here, too, on the disciples' part. Because if we keep reading, we'll see them start to argue. They're walking with Jesus. And they start to argue about whether or not they can be on Jesus' right hand and left hand in glory. That's pretty wild, right? To think, hey, we're doing so well that maybe we can be on your right and left when we go to heaven. I think maybe they just fell into function. And so what does that mean? I think that sometimes we do something so often we just get used to it. They weren't doing anything new. In fact, they'd been there before with stellar results. You can almost see them standing over this boy saying the same words they've said before, maybe moving their hands. It's almost like a Harry Potter spell in my mind, like it's Leviosa, not Leviosa. But nothing happens. I think it doesn't have to come from a bad heart. It's just routine and it usually works. It's amazing what people can get used to. When following Jesus becomes about the task rather than seeing the power of God unleashed in people's lives, when strategy becomes more important than people, we're dangerously close to powerless spiritual walks that look great on the outside. But on the inside, in our homes, in our churches, we're losing spiritual battles. I think there's another way that we leave Jesus out of the equation. For any of us that have been on the inside of church for a while, 
there's a temptation that happens to us. When we've sat in service after service, we've pretty much heard every passage preached. We've heard every sermon, and, and maybe like you're solid in your faith, and maybe you're volunteering with children or youth or some other ministry like in the church. And you, the temptation that hits us, I think, is so important that if we don't figure this out now, I think it'll handicap our ministries. It'll handicap our spiritual walks the rest of our lives. It'll leave us powerless to lead our families. And here's the temptation. It's to sit back and say, this isn't for me. You hear someone teach the Bible, talk about Jesus, and in your mind, maybe even subconsciously, you say, this isn't for me. This is for the new people. And we pushed evangelism so hard on Sunday mornings for so many years that we kind of started to think that the church wasn't for Christians, right? That Sunday morning was for lost people. And so you'd come and you'd hear the gospel and go, that isn't for me. I already know the gospel. And so we don't listen. Or maybe you're with the youth and you know, Jason is preaching the gospel, and you go, this isn't for me. I don't have to pay attention. I can sit in the back and talk, and I'm guilty of this. But the problem is, when the word of God is being preached, God is speaking to all of us. Don't fall into function. Don't get so used to the task that you do in ministry that you don't think you need Jesus, that we don't think we need Jesus anymore, that we don't have to listen because this is for somebody else. It is always for us. The Holy Spirit is speaking. So will you run to Jesus for his authority every day, in every spiritual battle, in every act of ministry? The disciples still needed Jesus, and so do we. Number two, the disciples still needed faith, and so do we. This is in 19 through 27. It says, And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it's often thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. Jesus calls them an unbelieving generation. This is a lack of faith. And without faith, the Bible tells us it's impossible to please God. So what would enough faith look like? Does it have to be an incredible amount? I don't think so. The Bible says that a mustard seed could move a mountain. Does it have to be perfect and complete, unwavering, every day, completely perfect? I don't think so. Listen to this man's response. I do believe Help my unbelief. He says, I do believe, Jesus, but sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I need you to help me believe because I really want to, but sometimes I struggle. So, Jesus, I need you to be the one who makes my faith possible, and then I need you to be the one that keeps my faith going because even when I want to do it, sometimes I mess up and I don't have it. Does that ring true in your lives? Has there ever been a moment when you say, God, I, I want to believe this, I want to trust you, the disciples still needed faith, and so do we. 
His faith was real but incomplete and lacking, but it was in the right place. Daniel Aiken said that a small amount of faith in a great Savior gets amazing results, and I'm thankful for that. So how do we cultivate faith in our hearts? If we look at our hearts and we say, man, I don't have as much faith as I would like, how do we cultivate that in our hearts? How do we grow our faith? I think there's a few things we can do. Number one is we remember. We remember what God has done. I think we're so quick to forget what Jesus has done in our lives. But if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then go back and think about a time that Jesus showed up for you. A time when he came through and won a spiritual battle in your life and then realized that if he can win it yesterday and he doesn't change, then today he's going to win. And since he's not going to change for eternity, tomorrow is safe because he's the same. A while back, me and my family were prepping to kind of do an intervention. Uh, my dad had fallen into, uh, he got addicted to prescription pain pills and was really, really struggling. But he also was struggling with uh, depression. And so we were meeting with a counselor to ask, how do we do this? How do we help somebody who has depression? And he told us something really interesting. He said, for clinical depression, your mind quits making a certain chemical. Your brain quits making a certain chemical, and then you need to take a pill to kind of fill that cup back up. But what happens is people with depression, they take the medicine, and then they start to feel better, right? The medicine works, and they come over here, and they go, man, I'm feeling great. I don't need that pill. I'm doing awesome. They forget that the power was in the pill, that that medicine is what was making them well. They weren't well on their own. You see how that correlates to our spiritual lives? We end up in a pit and we're in trouble and we cry out to Jesus, Jesus, I need you, please show up. And then he does. He shows up and he fixes things and he, he makes you well and he saves our souls and then we get so well that we say, you know what? I don't need Jesus anymore. I'm fine. We forgot that the power was in the Lord, not in us. So we cultivate faith by remembering where the real power is. It's in Jesus. Number two, I think we can cultivate faith in our hearts by being around the faithful. When I was at OSU, our wrestling coach name was John Smith. And he said that when he was young, there was a wrestler in the name of state of Oklahoma. I'm a wrestling fan. I grew up in a wrestling town. Like, I grew up in total wrestling. And so, like, I know most people aren't interested in wrestling. There's not very many of us fans out there. Uh, but, so anyway, John Smith. Uh, he was young. A guy named Wayne Wells won the Olympics. He's from Oklahoma. He won the Olympics in 1972, and he came back, and John Smith got to meet him. And he got to go up and shake his hand. And here's what John Smith said about that. He said, it became very real to me that it was a possibility to win the Olympics. John Smith went on to win two national championships at OSU as a, as a college wrestler. He won six world championships. Two of those were Olympic gold. And then he went on to win five national championships as the head coach of the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Most people would say that he's the greatest wrestler in American history, and he points to the proximity of being around someone who was great that made him realize that he also could be great. So I would say this. If you want to be tremendously faithful, then spend some time with people who are tremendously faithful. I think that being around that normalizes tremendous faithfulness. On Wednesdays, we do a Bible study in the atrium for adults, <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice cracked. 
We do a Bible study for adults. And my first time to teach that time, I asked the crowd because I was interested. I said, how many of you have followed Jesus for like five years? And they kind of laughed. And then I said, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I kid you not, I got to 90 years before I had to stop. 90 years of following Jesus. If you think somebody who's been following Jesus for 90 years doesn't have something to teach you about faithfulness, you're insane. There are so many faithful people in this room that you could spend time with. If you want to find out how to have a faithful marriage, then look around this room and find someone who's had a faithful marriage and just hang out with them. Get some coffee. Go to dinner. Ask them to be your friend. If you want to be faithful in your finances to the Lord, find somebody who's faithful in their finances and just ask them if you can hang out. If you want to have a faithful dating relationship, find somebody who dated well and ask them how they did it. And if you want to follow Jesus and make disciples with your life, find somebody who does that and spend as much time as you can with them because being around the tremendously faithful normalizes tremendous faithfulness. The disciples needed Jesus. The disciples needed faith. And how do we connect to that? We connect to both Jesus and faith through prayer. The disciples still needed prayer, and so do we. This is in 28 and 29. It says, When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And Charlie's been teaching on prayer for weeks, and here we are again. The disciples were powerless, come to find out, because of a lack of prayer. Prayer equals power. When we pray, we live and walk and minister in our own power. But when we pray, God's power is invoked. When we don't pray, we're on our own. When we do pray, God's power is invoked, which means that prayer is invoking God to act in his own power and in his own authority. Which means for us that prayer equals strength. But so often we use it as a segue between announcements and preaching. Or we use it as a password to get to our plate before dinner. The Bible tells us that power is how, power, prayer is how we access the power, the person of Jesus. But here's the problem. We live in a culture that says empower yourself. You have everything you need inside of you. It's basically the plot of every animated movie. The dragon warrior was inside you all along. But an honest look in the mirror tells me that's not the case. Because me plus nothing is just me. And I need the power of Jesus accessed through prayer. I need to rely on the Father rather than function, on prayer rather than performance. If we're diagramming a sentence, God is the subject and we're just merely some indirect object. God is doing ministry, he's doing work through us, in us. We're just the conduit, at least we ought to be. The power to overcome pornography and pride and immorality and hate and racism and guilt and shame is in Jesus accessed through prayer. So maybe lately we've just been going through the motions. Not out of malice, not out of a bad heart. We've just kind of left prayer out of the equation. I think that happens because we get so good at doing stuff, we get pretty good results, we can just do it on our own. But all of a sudden you look up and our God stories are old. 
It's pretty easy to go, yeah, I used to serve and I did this. Or, and then you stop and think, oh, that was in 2002. That was 20 years ago. None of the stories I just told you happened this year. None of them did. We don't want our God stories to get old. My prayer is that next year I stand up here and I tell your stories of what God has done in and through us. And God is moving. And the truth is I just don't know all the stories that are going on here. But I think there's a few reasons uh, that maybe we don't go to God in prayer. One is in a place like this where there's so much going on, it just gets normal. And we just plan our stuff and we do it. One is I think we go back to the beginning where we say, God, can you still use me? I think we don't feel worthy to pray sometimes because of what we've done, what we've thought, how we've treated people, maybe what's been done to us. And we just don't feel worthy to pray. God's not mad. He's not mad. Even if you've purposely been out of the game, he's not mad. But Jesus will use us to win spiritual battles in our families, in our homes, in this church, in our community, if we access Jesus and faith through prayer. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And we're going to end by praying. I think a lot of times we talk about praying and then don't pray. So the invitation is going to be a little different because here in a few minutes, Tyler's going to come up and do the Lord's Supper. But I just want us to pray. You can pray with your family if you want to. You can pray right where you're at. But here's how I want us to pray. I don't want us to pray the same old mundane garbage that I pray all the time. If I'm not paying attention... This is how I pray. Like, literally, this is a prayer I caught myself praying. I said, God, I just pray that today would be really good and that I would have a good day and that you'd help today to be nice. What is that? We serve a God who wins spiritual battles and saves souls and saves lives. He wants more than for us to have a nice day. So let's pray to invoke the power of God in our lives. God, there's pride in my heart. Will you humble me? I'm so full of lust. Will you get it out of me? I'm so angry. God, put out that fire. There's kids walking around the city with no hope, but Jesus, you are their hope. So God, put us to bed tired, and then you fill us up. God, use us to love other people until we have nothing left, and then you fill us up so that people will come to know you. Let's pray real-life prayers. Let's get back on track by accessing the power of God through prayer. Because even the disciples still needed Jesus, faith, and prayer. And so do we. Take a few minutes to pray and then Tyler will come up.